Hello and welcome to The Naked Scarf. I'm Adam. And I'm Andy. And today we'll be looking at the William Hartnell series, The Ark. So, to start off, did you like it? Uh, yes. Well, um, as you probably already know, I have rather a bias towards a lot of William Hartnell stories. Uh, because uh, William Hartnell's Doctor reminds me a lot of my granddad, if William Hartnell were brought up in Somerset. Um, is that your Somerset accent? That, that was my Somerset accent. It was accent. amazing. <laughs> Thank you. That's the only word I can actually say in Somerset is Somerset. But anyway, you yes. You probably just offended any listeners we have in Somerset, but let's uh, let's carry on. <laughs> oh, it's meant with the best intentions. I'm from your stock. No, um, I, I really, really, really do like... Um, Sorry, it's the way you said stock is like breeding stock, like you're kept in pens. Great, it's brilliant. We're not even a minute into this and we've gone completely off topic. Let's bring it back. Right, did you like it? Yes, I did like it very, very much. Um, I think that it has a lot of uh, interesting ideas in it, um, especially for this early on in the game. Um, I think it's a, a very engaging story. I think that it has a lot of... Or wonderful um, sort of special effects that the kind that give me a real affection for the older classic series uh, in context of the time, um, and and it just sort of uh, makes me wish that you know I, I could go back to then just so that I can clamber all over those fantastic you know old fashioned sets and, and just really get uh, stuck in there and, and yes uh, I I really really did enjoy it. What about yourself? Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, a lot of interesting ideas and slightly experimental in its structure, which I want to talk about in a second. But I, I, I do like the sets. I think it is quite ambitious for its time with all the different animals and everything. Um, I think it works well because it's in black and white, If you know, in the sense yeah. that some of the colour sets, particularly when it started being coloured with the poetry stuff, you'd think that this would look better in black and white, or yes. it's somehow some effects more convincing in black and white. I think the monoids wouldn't suit colour. I don't know if they suited black and white, to be perfectly honest, but I think <laughs> colour would not have been kind to them. No, no, um, not at all. But yeah, it's certainly very interesting. Uh, the structure is interesting because obviously, as I'm sure our listeners know, it's almost it's almost two separate stories. In fact, what I wanted to ask you was, do you think parts one and two would work as a story? Could they have then, because obviously the ending of episode two is when they go back, they, they travel on and they find themselves in the Ark's own future. But if that wasn't the ending, if they went into a different adventure, could they then have come back a few stories later to do part three and four of the Ark? Could it have been its own sequel or does it only work watching it from parts one to four? No, actually. Um, I, I think that it could have worked uh, quite well if you'd come back to it after a, a couple of episodes. Uh, almost like a, a bit of a surprise, of course, that would be quite reliant on uh, people um, watching um, all the episodes uh, concurrently and, and actually keeping up with it but uh, at the time especially uh, people would have done and um, of course um, they, you know, you probably could have done a bit of a recap on it Because it is from this time when episodes had individual titles, they yes. weren't parts 1 to 4 so it maybe would have made more sense than doing it now I mean sequels in Doctor Who are always interesting I think because whether they always work but also because you're in a time travel series so doing sequels you can encounter the same people, like, you know, you can encounter the Master again or the Daleks again, but it's not necessarily a sequel to the previous story that that race were in. Because I think you have to, maybe if you define a sequel as a story that directly follows on, uh, has where you suffer consequences from previous actions in yes. the previous story, and that's not always the case with a lot of Doctor Who stories, where various Santaran stories, for example, don't really follow on one to the other, but they still feature Santarans, and they, still, they might make references to previous stories, but it's not... 
that those stories, that story you're watching, comes out of the previous action of the story. Now, with the arc, if you did take it as two separate stories, then yes, it would very much directly be consequence following on, because of the rather interesting idea of them all getting Dodo's code. Uh, there is a rather horrific moment, actually, I think it's in episode two, where the Doctor and Stephen do have a moment of wondering whether they've just been going around the universe spreading their germs, <laughs> but they don't really dwell on it too much. It's kind of passed over. But the Doctor goes, oh, that's too horrific to think about, and then never mentions it again. So there's this idea that they might have accidentally wiped out several civilizations that we thought they'd saved <laughs> due to all their germs. It's never really explored, and probably you don't want to, because it would obviously ruin the whole programme for all eternity. Just you wait. You, you'll find that, you know, they've asked Russell T. Davis back to write a, a special episode for the new series, and, and it will be about the Doctor finding out that he's actually destroyed several, you know, um, um, races and uh, species there by, by giving them the common cold or something, and him being all, like, emo and then trying to deal with the consequences of that. That's actually interesting you just said that, because I was just going to say, it's only recently in the new series, and particularly actually in Russell T. Davis's first yes. series, Chris Records and stuff, that you they ever really look at the idea of the Doctor's uh, effect on, on civilizations, yeah. and in fact that's a very strong theme running through the first couple of series and then it does, it does get built up again because again it's only the theme can only explore too far and until you get to the point where basically you make the character almost useless because you think everything he does bring actually brings terrible consequences but the arc is a very early example of actually saying what do people turning up from the from the past or from the future what effect does it have and then no. actually having to face those consequences. It is an interesting one, actually. And, I mean, especially when, uh, uh, just to bring it back to a really recent episode from the Matt Smith era, uh, the Pandora... Do we call it an era yet? It's still era. happening, isn't it? It Well, you know, it's, it's down in my head as an era anyway. I think Matt Smith is fantastic. But... Um, uh, yes, uh, from the Pandorica opens um, uh, when uh, the Doctor is talking about the fairy tale of the Pandorica and what it contains, a creature, a trickster, soaked in the blood of um, a thousand civilizations, um, as, as old as uh, time itself. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that's quite interesting actually, because uh, and now that you mention it, um, <laughs> the Doctor probably has inadvertently, uh, without realising, uh, probably caused a, a lot of problems um but it, uh, because in the end ultimately because it's obviously fiction yes uh you can't i mean it's interesting to look at it but if you make too big a point of it you do actually destroy the series yes of course you, you do because basically you you think this, like, this is a big hero going around saving and sometimes he does things that may shock or surprise us he may destroy the other planet he may make tough decisions but ultimately he is we're supposed to sympathize and understand why but if it turns out that actually he's just causing chaos and death wherever he goes it it makes it a lot more awkward program to watch. It frankly makes it not Doctor Who. It makes it Battlestar Galactica. Saying was. that, there was something in uh, in in the arc that uh, did make me uh, wonder, which is uh, the fact that he expressed almost what well, is more typical of, of the classic series, supposed to the new ones, is that uh, uh, he didn't uh, express a moment's remorse for the fact that the monoids had all wiped themselves out, even though they had acquired near-human-like levels of intelligence, or even human-like levels of intelligence. Oh, so, but in didn't fact, they always have human le levels of intelligence? No, no, they uh, evolved. Not really, because I, I think the, the idea is they were always intelligent, because they were always able to communicate. In fact, there's even something in the second episode, I think, where the Doctor says one of them, you're more intelligent than you let on, aren't you? So I think it was always there. Yes. I don't think they evolved within no, that 700 I, I think years. That, um, I think they just got a bit gittish. Uh, well, and I think that they chose um, their moment to... Well, obviously, they become able to communicate in a human way in the later parts of the episode. 
Um, and also I think that they take advantage of a, a strain of human weakness or, or the weakness of the guardians, sorry, um, to uh, rise up against them. And um, yeah, I, I, I did actually think it was interesting that the Doctor actually is, is fairly pleased to hear that they've all wiped each other out uh, through fighting. Um, once again, he's always going to go back and, and champion, you know, and, and even um, advocate that the Guardians are going to be able to settle on this new planet and, and they will be a peaceful um, uh, species. It's, it's uh, quite interesting. I think, I mean, it's also one of the things of the Doctor as, as a moral voice is still not it's not a new idea but if you look at the series there's many cases of the doctor being a little less moral than we like to think oh, but yes. it's just because there's more cases where he is we yeah. don't know and even like i mean hartnell's doctor particularly in those early uh very early episodes he's you know he kidnaps people he, yes. he, he <laughs> might be about to kill a caveman that the moral voice only comes later as, he, as, as the character himself softens but you're right he doesn't go oh this killing's terrible he's a bit like oh well gotta go guys uh <laughs> Hope you don't get any more codes. Here's some limit. Bye. Basically. Yeah. Actually, something else about the arc, which I didn't realise until I checked because I had a feeling, is that it's Dodo's first full story because yeah. she appears at the end of the massacre at like the last five minutes or so. But this is her first full story. And I've made a little note here because, you know, this time I wanted to make sure I made all my points. And it just got failed companion question mark because she only did... Four stories, four and a half, because she just literally she disappears. She's a annoying. Yeah, I mean, her accent famously started off as Cockney and then flips into BBC English quite yes. often. And she's just, I think she was, I'm just trying to remember. Uh, yeah, she was basically, they, they got rid of her because they didn't feel she was working. It's, no. I mean, the thing is, particularly in those early stories, a lot of the, the young female companions didn't have very different personalities from each no. other. I mean... Susan was a little bit mysterious at first and a little bit unearthly. <laughs> unearthly child, see what I did there. Um, but I think that kind of lessened as the series went on. She became more of like a typical teenager, but was slightly obviously more intelligent and slightly more mysterious. And then you had Vicky and she was very much a Susan replacement. It's even almost commented on in the program yeah. itself. And then then you've actually got... Um, not admittedly, I, I have read or listened to the audio CD, the Dalek Master Plan, but you've got... Is it Katrina, Katharina? There's one that, yes, that joins in the Mystery Makers uh, and then dies in the Dalek Master Band because they realised she wasn't going to work. So she's, I suppose you could argue she's technically the first failed companion. Um, but Dodo is just, she's there and then she's gone and she never, she's never made much of an impression. Probably quite often forgotten about when people think of companions, very few people think of her. And it's interesting that in the uh, recent uh, Sarah Jane Adventures, after Death of the Doctor, when... Uh, Sarah Jane's talking about companions she's looked up or tried to track down. And I don't think, and obviously it's all the companions who are left who are left on Earth. Yeah, and I don't think she mentions Dodo. No, I'm fairly certain. I know it's it's uh, interesting that you mention that actually because um, well the thing that we have to remember about uh, television, especially the BBC at the time, is that uh, there wasn't a lot of character diversity. Um, a lot of the characters written for television at the times uh, followed uh, very, very set um, uh, sort of specifications. And so you're right when you say that a lot of the female companions were interchangeable uh, because obviously they felt they needed a young female element on the show. 
um, to to keep it interesting, to keep it concurrent with their uh, audience. Um, but um, their personalities are really, for the most part, quite similar um, because uh, it was it was what a woman on the television of that age at the time was allowed to be, essentially. I suppose. I mean, when I say female companions, I'm not so talking talking so much about people like uh, Barbara, no. who had but because she came on with Susan first time, she had also had to have a different personality. Yes. Um, and then you get people like, because after Audrey left, you get people like Polly and Ben. And Polly's got a bit of a different personality. That's because she has more the Ben character to bounce off. They're very much a yeah. pair. And I suppose after that, you get Victoria and then uh, Zoe. And Victoria and Zoe are different from each other in the sense that she, one was from the past, one was from the future. And obviously, Zoe's supposed to be super smart, but they're, they're similar enough. Yes. And then obviously, you get like Lisha, who's different, but a bit too different, and then has to leave, and Joe Grant. Um, and I think slowly you do get companions asserting their personality more and yes. more, and pretty more as, as different eras come up and different writers have different ideas about what they want the companion Definitely. to be. Definitely, but you could also, I, I think it'd be quite interesting to track this with how um, um, attitudes on television started to noticeably change and the sort of character diversity of uh, uh, shows that you get. Um, it, that would be interesting, but that's obviously subject to something much bigger than, you know, one um, video bo- uh, uh, audio book about the arc. <laughs> Yeah, and weird costume for her as well. Yes. I actually thought, because I wasn't too sure of the order, for a Doctor Who fan, I'm terrible on remembering the orders orders of stories these days, but I, I wasn't quite sure they'd had just had some adventure in the past for a second, because she came out wearing stuff that looked like it was from the Crusades, and obviously they did have a Crusades episode, yeah. um, but obviously she wasn't in it, and I think there was even a reference made to the Crusades actually early on when she wears it, but it just seems such a bizarre random thing to put her in, so there's something a bit more modern. It does well. At the um, end of the episode, obviously, she changes into something that is uh, kind of a bit more modern for the time, yeah. you know. And um, I, I did think that, though. I, I, I didn't like that outfit at all. I thought it was ghastly, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I only use the word ghastly when I think something's really, really horrible. So, um, And no, I, I, I wonder if it was kind of that sort of dressing up box mentality is kind of supposed to capture the imagination a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But th- that's the only real reason I can think that they might actually have done that. Uh, speaking of companions, we also have Stephen Valong serving one of the longest serving male companions, I think. Yes. Possibly the longest serving male companion. Or would that be Jamie? No, it's probably Jamie, actually. Yeah, in fact, I'm sure it's Jamie. Um, but also possibly one of the most testosterone fueled companions because he just seems angry at everyone. He's constantly like barking at people and just going, what? And it's, a, it's just like, I know he's supposed to be like a, a space pilot in a space war. He was originally featured in, yeah, The Chase. So he was written by Terry Nation. So it would have, whatever he, would, he was, it would have had the word space in front of it. <laughs> um, did I ever mention that there's an episode of Blake 7 uh, where one of them says something like space hussy or space slut? I can't quite remember, but I just thought... That's my new favourite insult. But yeah, space, anyway, space pilot. And he, but he is very kind of like... He's always a very aggressive companion in some ways. More aggressive than someone like uh, Ian was. Even though Ian was, you know, obviously like the action hero in the series when it first started and would do a lot of the physical stuff. He was never quite... Maybe because he was more of a teacher character, he wasn't quite as forthright as Stephen could be, though he, obviously he could, he was sent up to the Doctor and stuff. Is the Stephen's bad... is like, all the time. Rrr. Is this a bad time to mention that I find Stephen quite attractive? Yeah, that's fair enough. 
I, yeah, I, I think that actually he works quite well with William Hartnell's Doctor in that respect because, um, you know, of course, the Doctor always has the authority of his intelligence, but um, I always found William's Hartnell's Doctor, you know, had a little bit of like, you know, uh, like one part that's sort of old gent, you know, oh dear boy kind of thing um, to the... Uh, one part he's actually quite young and mischievous and I think that Stephen's personality actually works quite well against that because he's more like you know the exasperated you know person who has to sort of follow around a bit and, and try and be the sensible one you know but uh, yeah I like Stephen. Yeah I, I don't dislike him as a character I, d I just found it funny watching the arc how aggressive yes. he could be actually it really struck me that he was just in everyone's face going we'll do this we'll do that I mean there he's in the middle of the security kitchen Security <laughs> kitchen. Um, it sounds like, like my idea, Pal. And he's just, he's just like organising. Right, we're going to break out. We're going to put these guys in the eye. And it's just, it just made me laugh because I suppose after him, you've got Ben, who I haven't seen a lot with Ben and Polly in admittedly, but is again feels a bit the action role, but isn't nearly as aggressive in his own way. Um, though a lot more Cockney than say Dodo was allowed to be. And then you've got Jamie, who obviously does a lot of fighting, but again, he's not. He's got more of a slightly relaxed, almost jokey relationship with the Doctor. And then after that, the only real male companions we get are Harry, who filled a far more comic relief role, and Hadric, and we don't talk about Hadric. <laughs> Maybe uh, Stephen was just trying to chase the space pussy. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly one way. I'm just wondering whether I, we can. Re what age were we going for this again? Oh, it's too late now. <laughs> it's called the naked scarf. Yeah, I can't play. I can't play this to my seven-year-old nephew who's a Doctor Who fan now. Thank you so much. I don't think he's seen the arc. Having said that, actually, he's seen a lot of my VHS. But I, I actually, this was the first time I've seen the arc as well. Tell him you were talking about a cat. He's seven. He's not stupid. <laughs> But anyway, uh, of course he's not stupid. He's a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> I was going to say something about that. Doesn't necessarily go hand in hand, does it? But maybe we shouldn't be that controversial. Favorite moment of this episode, though, accidental favorite moment is uh, is in episode three where Monoid Number Two makes the most hilarious accidental <laughs> reveal of their plans ever. The way Peebles goes, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's basically Dodo goes, "Yeah, we've got to get all the people down." He goes, "Oh yes." Or do you? Ha, 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 ha. Yes. I'm paraphrasing very badly there. But then she's like, are you up to something? No. <laughs> it's, actually, it, it's hilarious. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but it comes across as being very, very funny. Because the other way does the voice of, no, I'm not doing anything evil. Evil plan. I mean, you know, he's actually laughing manically. And he goes, no, it's fine. Yes, I, I love the way that oh, these human beings, they're far too stupid. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and, and, you and they're just all know, listening yeah. just down the corridor. <laughs> you, you just know that they're going to uh, get their asses handed to them. They had stupid haircuts. They deserved it. They had Beatles haircuts. Beatles haircuts were very popular in the 60s and the end of time. Yeah. No, the problem is, is that the Mornoids, they really don't pull it off. I, I did quite like the effect, though, with the eyes in their mouths. Apparently that was the actors holding ping pong balls, balls yeah. in their mouths. And I'm like... It must be uncomfortable to do that. Well, it's it? not the most uncomfortable Doctor Who monster costume I can think of. But, yeah, it must be fairly up there. Yeah, I mean, they were interesting. They were never going to really be able to make a comeback. You could only really have them back now as comic monsters. I don't yeah. think you could have them back seriously. Because they're not the most graceful. You know, they kind of waddle, basically. It's like, at one point, they, they kind of run away from... A, run away and they're just waddling very quickly yes. away and you just think I don't know uh, from an evolutionary standpoint how well you'd have actually done with you know predators but 
they, they kind of they, they try to do an interesting look with them with the one eye and everything. And it does lead, I mean, that, that kind of unique face, one-eyed face, Beatles Week thing, does lead to the great cliffhanger. And it is a really great cliffhanger, the end of episode two, where they pan up the um, statue, which yes. is supposed to have a human head, and it's got a monoid head. And that is brilliant. That is really well done. That is very good. That's almost, it's a bit sad that I'm going to say this. I know it's not nearly on the same scale, but it's almost like that bit at the end of Planet of the Apes, when you're like, oh my God, wait. I'm going to assume it, everyone listening has seen Planet of the Apes. We are on Earth, and it's kind of like that same thing. Like, oh my God, you know, it's just like the end of the Sixth Sense or something. But you know, 1960s. <laughs> oh, he's dead. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's a great, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a great cliffhanger. But yeah, no, it is a great cliffhanger. I'm not disagree. In fact, I just that's what I just said. As you can tell, dear, dear, dear listeners, we're obviously entirely professional about this and we're not just rambling on incoherently and contradicting ourselves. But yeah, it does lead to that great... They're, they're, they're one of these months... I think they have made a reappearance in a Bernie Summerfield audio adventure. Oh, really? Yeah, I, think, <laughs> I, I read that, but I haven't heard it. But I imagine they're brought back for mainly comic purposes. Yes. I, I think there are more interesting aliens when in the first two episodes when, they, when, when they're just communicating via hand... Uh, hand signals or like kind of sign, kind of sign language. Yeah, I think that's actually pretty interesting, and it almost they get sillier and less interesting when you when they have a the, voice. Yeah, yes, because then true. they just become really standard up to who kind of evil aliens going, ha ha, take over, ha ha ha, and it, it's almost a shame because I of a silent race is quite interesting and could be interesting to explore, but I guess they felt it wouldn't be that interesting for the uh, viewers to see hands gesturing frantically. Though it's worth noting that number one uh, obviously remembers the time of the ha- frantic hand gesturing because he does a lot of frantic hand up and down dramatic hand movements. Maybe that's the actor trying to project the emotion through the costume, but... Yeah. No, um, uh, I did note actually that the voices um, uh, for the monoids were provided by different people to the actors inside the costume, so I assume that they definitely couldn't have said anything with those ping pong balls in their mouths. Uh, no, the one that I quite liked actually was the uh, very, very convenient disembodied uh, uh, voice of the Refusians. I, I was saying to Adam uh, that I actually want my own disembodied voice to just follow me around and be convenient. Um, and conveniently uh, lift up giant statues. Yeah, and just conveniently be able to lift giant statues. You know, I'm, I'm reliably informed that they were in fact a, a race of invisible giants. You know, so that's very uh, invisible, but peaceful giant. They kind of been that giant because all all their chairs were human size. Yes, and and, then and they, they fitted in the capsules, okay. Exactly, but then they did manage to move the giant statue out into and the I think it was just one huge of them. cargo bay. It's weird because they talk about them being a whole race, but you only ever hear the voice of one. And given yes. that they're invisible, you just thought they could have got a few more voice well, actors in. Well, let's face it: if they're a race of invisible giants, like you know, on that planet, then that could have been like three of them. But you also see shots where it's implied that one of them is sitting next to William Hartnell. And I love this because one half of the shot is William Hartnell sitting there, you know, and the other half is nobody sitting next to him. So you just assume that this invisible person must be sitting there, you know. It's, it's but just... it hasn't even got the like the depression down on the seats, no. point, so it doesn't even make clear. <laughs> well, come <But> on. <laughs> I mean, because it's not the first, the, there are no. several other invisible, Spyrodons, for it, example. Exactly, it's, it's very cheap. It's very, very cheap, but you just now. presume they must be naked. <laughs> because they say the solar flare, solar flares made them invisible, which is a great bit of Doctor Who science right there. Oh, those but solar flares! Th- I presume they make their clothes invisible, and maybe they're just r- running around being nude all the time. And the humans are going to get some terrible shocks when they finally move down to the planet 
now you realise they're living with nudists. Well, like I said to you, if I was on a lovely warm planet and I were invisible, I'd be naked all the time. Well, you wouldn't need clothes, would you? Because you it wouldn't be, be able cold. to see them. Well, I, I did specify warm. Okay. But, but yeah, I, I assume that actually you're right, they must be naked because if they had clothes on, unless their clothes were invisible because the solar flares had, you know, done their clothes in too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I do love that. That's a wonderful bit of Doctor Who science with, with the whole, like, yeah, know, solar, solar flares, flares made us totally again. invisible. And you're like, I mean, I've always said, you know, Doctor Who isn't what I would call a, a hard science fiction programme in that the science isn't accurate. But, yeah. I mean, it, it's played around with actual scientific concepts before. It's not unknown uh off the top of my head season 18 plays with a lot of scientific concepts but generally speaking it's it's a little closer to fantasy when it comes with its science even if they do use proper technobabble yeah oh one thing that i did really like actually talking about solar flares um although not necessarily to do this episode is the fact that uh during the hartnell era it was uh, said that the earth was uh, destroyed by solar flares and that was brought back again in the sort of Moffat era with uh, Starship UK. And that was why they had to leave the Earth, because of solar flares. Yeah, it's, it actually is an interesting point. Um, yeah, this isn't the first kind of humanity leaves Earth story. I mean, yeah. you've got the Ark in space as yes. well. Um, though you could accuse it of copying, but then again, you could, they're not. it's not that they're not copying it, it's more the fact that it was done at the time when they weren't VHS releases, so yes. no one could go, ah, you've just, you've yeah. just took that idea. But it is a very different story. But no, it's, it's a constant theme in Doctor Who about what humanity is actually going to do um, when we leave Earth. And it kind of reaches its um, height with a rather depressing suggestion in Utopia and Last of the Time Lords that we're going to become small metal he small uh, heads and small metal uh, bodies. Yeah. Uh, which I actually thought was one of the most depressing things I've ever seen in Doctor Who. And even, I, I, I almost wonder if Rusty Davis was suffering uh, from depression at the time because others' episodes around that time and even with um, Voice of the Damned is quite depressing. But that's getting. I just think that Russell T. Davis likes a little bit of the dramatic. Well, yes, obviously he does. <laughs> Everyone who likes Doctor Who likes a little bit of the dramatic. But you know, just the whole this pro Doctor Who's always event normally been a very hopeful program. It's been yes. a very positive program. It, you know, they're bad things, they're dangerous things, but there's also hope. There's always, you know, the goodness of humanity. But what uh, Russell T. Davis did in that was just like, yeah, humanity's great, but we're still going to end up as tiny metal balls. <laughs> But anyway, that's uh, perhaps getting a bit off. We can talk about that when we do that episode a bit more, maybe. Do you have any other points you'd like to make? No, no, that's pretty much it. It's just a very, this is the thing, um, a lot of the older episodes, without wanting to patronise um, at the time, uh, you know, the, the um, era they were written in, but they are a lot simpler than what we have now for many reasons. I'm not saying that means they're any less enjoyable or any less intelligent. It's just, you know, much, much simpler. Um Perhaps a bit less to. There's one, one point I want to make. I really hope in the future we still wear trousers. Because we're not wearing trousers in the Ark as a species, and I find this lack of trousers quite distressing. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a popular thing in the 60s and to the 70s. Dot two is future humanity of people on other planets, less of the trousers. No, and it's not no. that I'm a prude about these things, but I like a nice pair of trousers. I have to say, I'm pleased to see that in the future, humanity has. Nothing to hide in the wang department. <laughs> you do know how hard I try not to swear on this because I I don't know what age we should put this out at when we, when we put it on iTunes. And you're you're just like wang pussy, yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> you don't have to explain what it means to anybody. 
<laughs> I'm doing this with my seven-year-old nephew from now on. I, I expect, and he'll be less potty mouth than you, frankly. So, so on the bombshell that uh, future humanity will not have anything to be uh, anything to show in the Wang department, I think we should leave that. Say goodbye, Andy. <laughs> I will see you later. <laughs> have fun, folks. If you want to contact myself or Andy, you can visit our blog at nakedscarf.tumblr.com or you can email us at nakedscarf at gmail.com. Feel free to leave any thoughts, criticisms, queries or interesting and irrelevant fan theories.